This is Contra Radio from Contra.Scot. Hi listeners, this is Peter Remand. Today we're bringing you a very special episode of Enemy Within. As regular listeners will know, my co-host James Foley recently co-wrote a book on Scottish independence that was just published by Verso. James will be doing events across the country to promote it, and last week he and his co-author Ben Ray did a launch in Glasgow with the comedian Frankie Boyle. So today, we're bringing you that live event in full. If you haven't already, please buy James's book. It's called Scotland After Britain, The Two Souls of Scottish Independence. And don't get it from Amazon. Support independent publishing and go to www.versobooks.com. They've got a site-wide sale going on right now, and when you buy it there, you'll get a free ebook sent to you, as well as the paperback. Now, I'll hand over to your host for today, Frankie Boyle. I hope you enjoy the show. People ready for kickoff? Yeah. All right, cool. I'm Frankie. This is uh, Ben and James. They've written this book, Scotland After Britain. Uh, say hello if you want. Yes. <laughs> you better wait till the end before deciding you want to applaud. <laughs> That's a good point. Book. It's a great book which will be on sale in the foyer uh, or whatever they call it here. Um, it's also written by uh, Neil Davidson. I thought we'd start by getting guys to tell us about who Neil was and, and what his work was. Because I know Neil from having stolen some of his ideas for uh, the Tour of Scotland show I did. about, right. And there's some bits, about, he wrote a lot about Scottish identity and the formation of Scottish identity within Britain and stuff like that. Do you want to tell people a bit about who Neil was? I mean, Neil very tragically died during the process of writing the book, during the early stage of the pandemic. Neil was one of these guys who he always had time for you. Um, intellectually, even when I was a wee unemployed bum hanging about Glasgow, I knew was someone who'd won academic prizes, had written tons of books, etc, etc. First and foremost, he was always someone that would give you the time of day. He'd uh, be willing to teach you about theoretical issues, about the big politics, and he'd always go for a coffee with you. But beyond that, Neil was the author of, I believe, absolutely dozens of books, including the Isaac Deutscher Memorial Prize winning Discovering the Scottish Revolution. Some of these books have been pathbreaking in the history of Marxist and socialist theory. He was uh, passionate uh, in his commitment to a theory of nationalism as being related to the structures of modern capitalism. A theory that's kind of been disparaged by a lot of people in the field of nationalism studies over the year, but Neil, more than I think any other intellectual or relative to very few intellectuals worldwide, has tried to revive the idea that Marxism and socialist ideas can teach us something about uh, what nationalist movements are about, where they come from, and where they might be going today. So we've got this new era that's starting where We've got a Prime Minister who's channeling Margaret Thatcher's dementia. Um, <laughs> and we've got this constant sense of crisis. What provoked you in this period in time to, to write this book? What was the idea behind the book? Well, we, we kind of decided to write the book in a different period of time. So it's, it's been a long, a long journey, this book. In 2016, we agreed with, with Verso to write it. And at that time, we were thinking, after the, the 2014 referendum, Corbyn was the leader of the Labour Party, you know, there was issues around uh, the fall in the oil price and what that was going to mean for independent Scotland's public finances. So the idea we were thinking at that time was we wanted to do just a new left-wing case for independence. But then the then Brexit happened, three years of you know Brexit crisis, and then there was the general election, uh, and around that time, we were rethinking what 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 should this book really be about? What 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 can we say that's going to make a difference? Is going to say something important about the nature of Scottish politics? And sadly, around that time, when things started clearing up, so the general election 2019, if you remember, um, that Boris Johnson won, that kind of put the seal on Brexit. That was definitely happening. Corbyn was finished after that general election. 
Um, around that time, politics started clearing up. We had a better idea of what this was going to be about. Unfortunately, that's when Neil uh, was was diagnosed with cancer and he, and he died in the, the early period of the pandemic. Um, so James and I had to think, you know, what do we want to do about the book? Neil had wanted us to finish it. We'd only really got going properly just before he'd fallen ill. But we decided to go ahead with it because we felt like we had something to say, especially about what independence has become because for us independence has kind of been transformed since 2014 and the 2014 referendum was a grassroots largely working class movement you know really fighting to not just Scotland to become independent but at the heart of that movement for me was the idea that we can transform the country in the process the 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 following what we're now eight years on it's become something different. The SNP is the hegemonic party in Scotland. It's won eight out of eight elections since 2014. It's been in power now for 15 years uh, at the Scottish government level. And for us, independence is now a means by which the SNP can reproduce their own power as the new sort of political establishment in Scotland. So we wanted to be, provide a pro-independence critique of what's happened in those years, why that's happened, and what can be done about it. Because we still think independence has got radical potential, you know? Yeah. We still think it can be something that can be transformative to Scottish society. But a lot's going to have to change for that to happen, because right now it's just being used as a means to, as I said, to reproduce this, the status quo. So that's kind of the, the concept we ended up with. It took us a long time to get there, but eventually we did, and that's... That's really the, the heart of the book that we've published. I was just going to say there as well, I mean, the initial title for the book was going to be What is Scottish Independence For? The underlying assumption behind that title was that we were probably going to have an independence referendum, right? And that kind of seemed inevitable at various different points at that stage after 2016 with Brexit, with the vote in Scotland and so on and so forth. In fact, there was very few commentators that were actually saying, no, it's unlikely to happen. So we were kind of of the view that if it was going to happen, then we needed a debate about why we should have independence and what, how those powers could be used. And we were going to make an intervention in those terms. And much of the early draft of the book was basically about that. The problem was, as time wore on, it kind of became clearer and clearer and dawned on us more and more that possibly an independence referendum wasn't in the offing. And we've been in this kind of weird situation in Scotland for some amount of time where we seem to be perpetually about 12 months away from the next referendum. And therefore, I think we wanted to try and capture as well what was actually going on here and how, how this idea of a permanent nationalist mobilisation without the actual possibility of an outlet of independence was becoming embroiled in the reproduction of some of the worst aspects of our own political culture, albeit that you can always say here with some legitimacy, and this is precisely the problem, that things here are better than they are down in Westminster. And the problem is there's always going to be a grain of truth in that. It's part of the reason that we wanted to say as well that when people are supporting the SNP and when people feel inspired by the cause of independence, it's not just about flag shagging and nationalism and braveheart and all these types of things. There are real fundamental reasons why this movement and this party that came out of a movement continues to thrive. And we wanted to capture some of that as well. So like from the outside, anyway, it seems to me there's kind of two strands to independence now where there's a, a kind of demotic uh, side to the SNP try and distance themselves from. But they have captured a lot of the radical energy of, of um, the independence movement, haven't they, or of, of the Yes campaign. And is it just the case that the sort of people who would have joined Corbyn Labour, for example, uh, up here joined SNP after the referendum and were kind of incorporated into it or feel feel that sated their, their politics? It does seem to me to be part of the explanation for why things like Corbynism couldn't really thrive up here. It's also true, I think, to say that elements of the Labour left that I've talked to over the years never really understood why people felt such a degree of loyalty to the cause of independence and by extension to the SNP. I did really think that what you saw in uh, 2014, an aspect of that was class-based rage over a number of economic factors such as austerity and things like that as well, but also at the sense of lacking agency in their politics and in the idea that when it came down to it, 
a Labour opposition was always going to be a bit feeble in taking on the Conservatives, which was really a feature of the politics of the time. And this means it was always difficult for people who have already said, fuck it, I'm moving away from the Labour Party, to then move back and say, oh, well, they've got a left-wing leader, they're all nice now, I can come back. I always thought that was unlikely to happen. And it never really did um, happen in Scotland, for good or ill. That was always an aspect of what was going on. But yeah, I think it is the case that a lot of that good energy that we saw, which had its rough and ready elements, but 2014 was the most inspirational moment in Scottish politics that I can remember. It was one of those peculiar situations where you would go into pretty much any local communities. Uh, the types of communities that don't have a big political culture and where, generally speaking, in some cases, people hadn't been talked to for 30 years by the Labour Party. And grassroots me uh, meetings would be springing up about the case for independence. That sort of energy was sadly incorporated into the SNP. Um, I think because people felt such a sense of rage at the Labour Party because of what had happened with the Better Together Coalition, where they signed up with the Liberals and the Conservatives and so on at the time. And the SNP just seemed like a vehicle to punish, particularly the Labour Party, for some of those political errors. But I think also as well, like what's happened is that that has allowed the SNP to become very centralised. It's become less like a movement party and more like an electoral party that's simply embroiled in reproducing the status quo in Scotland. And just to add the the um, what you said about demotic uh, element versus the kind of SNP leadership element. I look at it a wee bit differently, right? Because I've engaged with uh, you know the the all wonder one banner type protests and all that, and I get the thing that you know it's all about the flags, it's all about Indie now and all that. A lot of those people have actually quite big ideas about what an independent Scotland could look like. Like for example, right. Um, a few years ago now, there was a huge debate at the SNP conference between people who supported what's called the Growth Commission report, right? The SNP leadership. Uh, this report was written by a corporate lobbyist called Andrew Wilson, and basically puts forward a vision for independent Scotland with, you know, the Bank of England still controls um, the money supply, uh, the regulations are really whatever the City of London wants. Tax, corporate tax is tied to whatever Westminster does. A very limited conception of what sovereignty could look like in Scotland, right? And at that conference, they debated it. Every single person who spoke in favour of that vision was on the payroll of the SNP. Every single person who spoke against was just an ordinary activist. And they put forward big ideas about how you could run a monetary system uh, differently, how you could have more Scottish control over the economy. Um, so I, I, I think that there's a, a lot of like energy within the grassroots movement which still exists, not like it used to be a few years ago when there was big demos. There's not been those big demos recently, but I think it could still come back where people really think independence could be a means to, to transform society and they're willing to challenge their own leaders. And I think that's something new from 2014. I think if I was to do 2014 again, I would be more willing to challenge Salmon than say this currency plan yeah. is a joke. But actually, a lot of people would do that now. But maybe we were a bit too naive at that time. Maybe we weren't, we weren't critical enough to, to think that we need to challenge our own leaders. So I think that's one thing that's actually improved about the movement over the years. People are willing to stand up and say, this isn't right. This is how it should be. You know, so yeah. I've got a, a bit of a different perspective on, on how to look at the, the kind of grassroots activists. Oh, yeah. No, I think there's a lot of good uh, in that side of things. And I think like uh, successful independence movements need to incorporate that kind yeah. of thing surely yeah. and they need to be broad churches i went to some like showbiz dinner that salmon had before like for the independence campaign in 2014 and you're sort of sitting listening to so i had the broad strokes of like what their proposals were but like one of the central economic planks of it was we're going to uh, give free childcare to release women back into the work workforce to expand the tax base yeah. and at the same time we're going to cut uh, flight duty so the idea is we're going to attract more tourists to Scotland mm. and we're going to get all these women working, changing sheets in golf hotels and stuff like that. <laughs> and you're just sitting like in this kind of weird showbiz dinner going, this is fucked. This is just <laughs> not a not a plan that really cares about folk. Mm. Or, mm. And I mean, is there a sense that the SNP's conservatism, so we've got this crisis in British 
capital where we've got an economic collapse looming or we've had a crash in the pound uh, and and they're kind of tied to that is that a problem that, i think that's a big problem i think one of the one of the uh, arguments which i make in the book is that when an era of ruptures, as you said right at the start, seems to be one crisis after another, they roll into each other, they intensify each other, because this global system that we've got is cracking, it's breaking at the seams. And the the SNP's programme is kind of stuck in a kind of time warp uh, where they, they imagine independent Scotland's going to enter this free trade, uh, fi frictionless trade, global system, there's not going to be any any problems, we'll just integrate with all the international markets uh, and, and it'll all be fine. That's the kind of, that's the, the idea of the Gulf Commission report, that it's all about integration in global capitalism. And I think that's extremely naive when you look at, uh, you know, the way the, the, the world is going. So I think one of the things we try and do in the, in the book is, is look at what, what are some of the alternatives to those ideas? How can you actually talk about not just uh, Scotland's national sovereignty, but what popular sovereignty in Scotland would look like, where the people had some, some power over the economy and, and that sort of thing? This is kind of reflected in the fact that you've had persistent crisis after crisis. And very often this is the excuse for why independence isn't quite, you know, matured and ready to go ahead yet. So we had, we can't have independence until we get the Brexit situation over with. And then it's like, we can't have independence until we get the COVID situation over with. And now it's going to be probably, we can't have the situation until we sort out what's going on with the cost of living crisis, what's going on with the war with Russia, Ukraine, et cetera, et cetera. Now, all of these are seemingly in and of themselves, fairly legitimate reasons and serious things that actually do need to be sorted out. The problem actually with that though is, the underlying assumption is that we're going to return to normal, right? That there's going to be a time when we return to a period which is fantasized about in both the rhetoric of Alex Salmond and Nicola Sturgeon in different ways over the years. Um, and also, of course, as Ben says in the Growth Commission, that we're going to get this sort of vast growth economy once we get independence because we'll have the powers to unleash maybe with lower corporation tax or whatever, we're going to have the power to unleash Scotland's economic potential. But the problem is that we don't live in that type of planet, that type of world economy, and that type of European economy anymore. Um, so essentially, we have an 80s retro fetishist in terms of Liz Truss running the economy, and obviously that's mad in various ways that people uh, people are quite familiar with. But also we've got essentially a 90s retrovision that is driven by the SNP in terms of their vision for independence, which can never be fulfilled. And we have the 90s retro bring back Tony Blair vision of the Labour Party as well. What we don't have is a programme for either Scotland or Britain that's actually coming to terms with the global situation we actually find ourselves in. And Brexit's a big part of that, isn't it? Because Brexit now in the Scottish independence debate is like, look, there's been a material change so at the point where people voted uh, in the referendum, we were going to remain in the EU. And that was one of the reasons that some people would have voted no in the referendum was we're going to remain in the EU. So this is a material change and uh, we're going to retake our place in, in the EU and all that. But you guys see various problems with that, don't you? Yeah, because what's kind of happened is after the, the Leave vote, the SNP leadership, especially Nicola Sturgeon, our kind of position within British politics and international politics actually was transformed by by that vote. She kind of became an avatar for kind of international remainism, you know. Um, the Guardian would write editorials saying like Nicola Sturgeon speaks for Britain. Like her role within politics was adjusted and became more of an insider in the kind of liberal British politics than, than, than an outsider. You know, she went on the People's Vote March with uh, Alistair and did a selfie with Alistair Campbell. In that period, the, 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 the SNP leadership became more focused on blocking Brexit than, than in delivering independence. So it changed the dynamics of independence, uh, the independence debate in Scotland. Like the, the reality of it is there's a, a massive support for the EU within the independence movement. The independence movement is probably the only popular movement in Europe where people wave the EU flag. It's not something that's done in, in most of Europe. And it's obvious why that is. It's because Britain is seen as, as isolated as the enemy and anything that's against Britain is is, is on our side. I, I, I get that, but that's going to run up against problems. I mean, just look at Catalonia, right? 
they had the referendum in, in 2017. And one of the things the Catalans were saying before that referendum is, even if Spain come after us, Europe will see us. You know, Europe will be aware of, of what we're doing. They'll, they'll protect Catalan democracy. The referendum happened. The Spanish police went and beat up old grannies at the, the, the ballot box. And the EU didn't do a damn thing about it because the EU is not interested in protecting Catalan democracy. It's interested in supporting its, its own member states. So I think we need to develop uh, within the independence movement a more critical perspective on the EU, acknowledging that the independence movement is going to continue to support the EU um, for you know the foreseeable. But at some point, you're going to hit a roadblock because these institutions, the EU is an elite institution, doesn't really have much democracy within it. These institutions aren't on the side of mass movements in general. So at some point, the EU is going to come into contradiction with a, with a, with a movement for, for Scottish independence. So that's not going to happen tomorrow. But I think the left has to develop a more critical attitude toward, towards the EU going forward. And to me, it's not just about the left here as well. I mean, I, I think it's about the complete breakdown of capitalism in its current form in some ways, right? But even beyond that, if you even just take for granted the SNP's type of independence. Even then, the case for being in the EU doesn't add up as of yet. You cannot be in the European Union while using the currency of a member state that is outside of the European Union and in many ways hostile to the European Union. There's all sorts of questions that will be asked about Scotland's public spending relative to its income, which would entail austerity on a fairly extreme level in order to meet some of the criteria. And you really could go on in a number of different ways. Being a member of the European Union is inconsistent with many of the other promises that the SNP has made. And much of the SNP's vision of independence, as I've said, is kind of like a throwback to the sort of, uh, you know, Celtic tiger type of politics that prevailed amongst small nations in the 1990s. But the problem is even those small nations aren't really living that dream anymore and for us to get there I think is not so possible and I'm not saying that because I'm a pessimist about independence I mean if you actually read the book ultimately there are things I think that we can do within the conditions of an independent Scottish state that would go some way to reversing some of the damage that we have done to our economy and our society over the last 40 to 50 years it's not from a position of pessimism it's just from the fact that if you really want independence to happen at some stage, we need a serious and realistic reckoning with some of the challenges that we face. That, I think, is true whether you are a socialist as myself and Ben are, or whether you're someone that is looking at it from the SNP's angle, essentially as being a normal state where Scotland will have a seat at the table. If even only that is your goal, there's still a great work to be done in terms of tying up a million loose ends in terms of our programme for independence. Is that a thing, isn't there, where politicians, like, they spend so much time lying, you wonder how much, how much they're lying to themselves? So, like, is there a thing within the SNP where people don't really want independence and they're happy to manage this as a kind of fiefdom? I've all, we're all contradictory, right? So I think part of what SNP leaders, SNP leadership will genuinely believe is... I'm part of a project that's, you know, credible, legitimate, realistic. We need to defend uh, the SNP in terms of our popularity because that will be the means by which we can stay in power and at some point we'll get a chance to get uh, a referendum, get independence. I'm sure, you know, I'm sure that's in their heads, right? You know, another side to it, and I think this is, you know, where sort of people like me and James would come from a more critical perspective on it, whereby if you're not using your power to change things in here and now or and or to force a referendum to happen here and now what are you what are you using it for you know what i mean what what have the SNP done with their continual mandates that they rack up election after election are they changing things fundamentally in scotland tackling poverty and inequality i would argue they're not using the powers that they have to do that are they forcing a referendum to happen I would argue they were—they're not doing that. So I'm not saying they don't believe in independence. You know, that it's some sort of big lie. I'm sure they do. But are they willing to take risks to make well, it happen? I are they willing the, to challenge the British state to actually make it happen? I think you know? that's the key point, isn't it? Are they just incredibly risk averse? Mm. And could you draw an analogy with Starmer, where you're going, 
look, I don't want to take any risks whatsoever and this might fall into my lap. And it might now fall into his lap, probably will. And is there, is there a parallel with SMP where they're like, well, if we just do nothing and act as capable managers for long enough, this state might just collapse? I think that's a big, probably a big aspect of what they might be thinking. If at all they do consider the question of how are we actually going to get independence tactically? Um, I mean, I, I know that there is a Supreme Court thing that is ongoing. Most people that I've spoken to that have any type of legal authority on the matter tend to think that that's pretty much a foregone conclusion. In terms of the next election, I imagine it's going to be quite useful for them to still continue to paint it as if it is some sort of de facto referendum on independence. But I don't think there's any chance that the SNP is going to turn around if 50.1% of Scotland votes for the SNP and the Greens and say, OK, we are unilaterally declaring independence tomorrow. So I don't think any of that stuff is particularly realistic. If they think about it, yes, you're probably right. They're thinking this state has been absolutely ridden with problems for a long, long time. Eventually, surely it's got to collapse. But, you know, I think to me, the Britain has already been through the biggest peacetime crises that it's ever likely to encounter. In many ways, we're not that much further forward in terms of independence than we were back in 2014. It's a similar percentage of the population who are ultimately in favour of it. It's absolutely staggering, to be honest, how much crazy stuff has happened to the British state over the last probably six years, economically, politically, culturally, etc., etc. And yet the number of people who support independence seems to remain broadly static. All of that stuff has already happened. And programmatically, we don't really know what independence is about. And in terms of a mechanism for getting us any closer towards it, I think we're at desperation stakes. So no, I, I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that what you say is correct. I mean, they probably have some sort of thought at the back of their head somewhere thinking at some stage, all this has got to collapse, surely. But it's equally possible that Keir Starmer comes in, he gets some sort of majority and whole swathes of the population are just intent to turn off politics, even as things get worse. The one thing I would say about Sturgeon in a useful analogy in some ways with Keir Starmer and other leaders of the centre-left, why is it that Sturgeonism itself doesn't collapse? So often over the last period, people who talk progressive rhetoric while things get worse and worse and worse have been punished by the electorate, right? And of course, if you look at Scotland, yes, we can always say Westminster's partly to blame for drug deaths, for our failures on the attainment gap, for our failures on child poverty, etc., etc., but ultimately, you've got to be one thing or the other. Either we're using our powers under devolution or we're pursuing independence. The alternative to doing one of those two things is to do nothing. And you're probably right. Maybe that is the plan. Do nothing and see if Britain will collapse by itself. Just to add to that, countries don't become independent very easily. It's quite a difficult thing to do. Like you look at history. Um, most countries that have become independent have been uh, decolonization movements, or, you know, in the case of the USSR, the disintegration of the USSR. There's not many examples in, in sort of modern European history of, of countries becoming independent. Why is that? It's because the, the, the state, the hegemonic state, they want to hold on to their territory. They don't want to let it go. Um, now, we, in 2014, we had a democratic choice to make, right? Uh, David Cameron gave us the option. I think I don't think that's going to happen again because democracy is in decline everywhere. I would argue it's in decline in, in Britain as well. They're not just going to hand us another chance like that easily anyway. So if you really want independence to happen, it's going to require a big conflict with the state. It's not going to be easy. You're going to need to have, I, I think, not just parliamentary majorities in Hollywood. You're going to need mass movements as well of people saying, we want this to happen, whether it's Keir Starmer or Liz Trust, we're going to put the pressure on. To, to force it to happen because they're not going to give it up. Uh, they're not going to give up Scotland easily, you know. Uh, I, I think it's going to require a, a big struggle. History suggests that's the case. I also think Trident is a hugely understated factor in it all. I mean, mm. it's very different, difficult strategically to put Trident anywhere else and to put it anywhere near England. It's going to be politically incredibly difficult. So without Scotland, they're just half a, a rainy island in the middle of fucking nowhere with no nukes. And I think that's... That's underestimated sometimes. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what else do we have to justify the thought of the United Kingdom as being some sort of great nation that's worthy of its seat on the UN Security Council and so on? No, absolutely. Trident, I think, is going to be central to considerations um, around that. Um, absolutely. Just to change the tack slightly, historically, Scotland's got a, a unique position within the, the British Empire uh, in that it's, it's not a victim of empire in the same way that other uh, countries uh, were it's if anything more like a kind of evil henchman uh, <laughs> and I don't know that across the independence movement or across Scotland in generally that's particularly understood what's your take on that I think it's inter that's interesting I'm not sure either you know it's it's funny that the act of union happened it's not funny, uh, but it's uh, it's curious. The Act of Union uh, happened seventy oh seven out of a, a failed attempt by Scotland to set up a colony in Panama, what, what what's called Panama now, and it, it was then it was called Dian the Dian scheme. Half of Scotland's money, half of all money in Scotland went into the the Dian scheme. It was complete complete disaster. And then obviously Scotland, as you say. As, as they entered the union and largely that there hasn't been an independence movement until that started to go into decline. So Scotland's benefited from from being part of uh, 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 of the British Empire. Certainly Sturgeon would, would not say Scotland's an impressed nation. You know, I don't think Salmon wouldn't have said that either. Would I it? think Salmon officially did deny this, but, you know, he was often ambivalent in the way he was phrasing it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's certainly um, at that level, I don't think there's any illusions that Scotland's some sort of like colonised country or anything like that. I don't know. I think at the grassroots level, I think people generally understand that this is a struggle uh, that's about, you know, tackling the problems that Scotland has, poverty, inequality and so, so on. It's not like a national liberation struggle in that sense. But what do you think? What, what do people in the movement think? I think we can sometimes get a little bit too hit up on the fact that people like to dress up like Braveheart <laughs> and all this sorts of things, right? And uh, wave salt tires about and stuff like that. And sometimes I think that is just a form of subcultural behaviour that's like not as malignant as people might imply. I do think that what's probably more worrying is a sort of soft civic nationalism that says... We don't really have a problem around racism. Look, we're the better people. Mm. We're the people that didn't vote for Brexit, et cetera, et cetera. Therefore, the problem with racism in society is really an English thing rather than an us thing. Mm. Again, officially, I think if you asked the Scottish government for a statement on the matter, they would formally deny that they actually thought that. But ultimately, much of the things that we do in day-to-day -day theorizing of racism and so on in Scottish government practice does tend to imply um, a certain ignorance um, and a certain unwillingness to confront. I think also it's fair to say that we just don't really want to talk about the fact that we were central players in the British Empire. It's not that people are officially in denial or that we're officially denying it as a nation. It's just the case that Scottish people aren't really comfortable with it because it doesn't really fit with our idea of being morally better as a people. But I do think independence can actually improve these things in some ways. I mean, my hope about independence is that it will ultimately create more accountability mm. about our political leaders, but also about ourselves and our own traditions and our own civilization and so on, because I don't think it's healthy to blame all the problems that we've ever had on England or Westminster or whatever it is, even when there's a partial truth to it. The partial truth just helps to conceal the fact that we're building a national myth. And even where national myths seem like they're leftist or progressive or whatever, ultimately myths are myths and you're not really going to build healthy civic culture out of myths. We need to start from the perspective of truth and I think that's what we are trying to do even if at times those truths can be uncomfortable. Yeah, you get a lot of that in Ireland as well when people go, and you don't really get racism in Ireland, they're just about to say something racist. <laughs> <laughs> Almost 100%. I can remember though like, it's hard to think now, but independence was such a fringe thing in Scotland. I mean, it was a tiny fringe. When I was a teenager, I mean, it was like so niche politically and they'd have the odd by-election victory for the SNP or whatever. What's, what's changed that? I think the, the key thing is the demise of, of Labour as the dominant force in, in, in Scottish politics. Um, in the book, we kind of make a distinction between the Scottish Labour and Labour Scotland. Labour Scotland is like the social base, 
that Labour Party's hegemony was built on in Scotland for, what was it, 40 odd years, they were the dominant party in Scotland. So it was mass council housing, um, trade union, industrial trade unionism. These were the kind of, the, 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 the kind of bulwarks in society which maintained Labour's, Labour's hegemony. Those things, obviously, in the neoliberal year, have started to, to collapse. And in fact, Labour Party is, is responsible for, for a great deal of that under the, the Blair government and also the early Scottish Labour liberal liberal governments that, that kind of entrenched the, the neoliberal system um, in Scotland. So the SNP was there when the financial crisis happened, even just slightly before the 2007 elections. They were there and could offer an alternative to that. And I think the modern independence movement um, in the book, we, 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 there's, a, there's a chapter where we look at where, what is the, the independence movement. We, we say that it wasn't really, a, a, a independence movement wasn't really a thing, like a big thing, until the referendum was basically happening. And then people started organising and that sort of thing. So it's a very modern movement, I would argue, and it's born out of the sort of weakness of the Labour Party. But the Labour Party, even, even in 2014, you know, there was a lot. I, I remember thinking the Labour Party could still make a big comeback. You know, this this might this referendum might destroy the SNP if they lose, and Labour might still come back. So the referendum itself was also important in in buying Labour because Labour uh, hatched their wagon to to better together, um, and that sort of set the the scene for the sort of you know SNP domination that, that that we have now. I think I think the Labour's demise is key to that. I don't think, even if Keir Starmer and uh, Labour win the next UK election, I don't think there's an easy road back for them in Scotland. Just one thing that may, people might not remember this, but the independence movement was so badly disparaged by not just the sort of your BBCs or your right-wing medias and so on, but back in 2014, uh, between 2012 and 2014, as support started to grow, it was really treated as being like this sort of like monstrous demagogic populist uh, eruption against the civilised common sense of Britishness, even by outlets such as The Guardian, The Observer and so on. Um, I think Will Hutton, and we quote him in the book, called it something like a revolt against the Enlightenment um, and all this sorts of stuff, right? Um, and genuinely, there seemed to be this sense of panic it was not just the Queen panicking or David Cameron panicking, et cetera, et cetera, but it was much a liberal Britain panicking that there was all these terrible Scottish people who were wearing kilts and deluded by nationalism and this toxic virus of nationalism that was spreading everywhere. And some people have just never been able to move past this, including elements of the intellectuals of Scottish Labour um, and so on. They've just never been able to move past this idea that these people were fundamentally deluded. No matter how much I might criticise the SNP or say the failed on child poverty or the failed on the attainment gap or the failed on drug deaths or any of these other things, it still remains the case, I think, that people revolted against Scottish Labour for fundamentally rational and understandable reasons. And if you can't capture that, you also can't capture, I think, a big part of the current reality of British politics. I remember like Labour's participation in the referendum campaign was just mad. Like Jim Murphy, do you remember him going around with his like <laughs> his little box that he stood on and he'd fucking argue with people in town centres and stuff? Yeah. But I became fascinated by Jim Murphy and I'd watch everything he did, right? I just found him hilarious. And at one point he goes to where the daily record is printed and he goes, I'm gonna go. He obviously thinks I'm gonna meet some workers, do some glad handing, but it's now totally automated. So he's got his own YouTube channel and it's him going this utterly empty, deserted building. And some guy comes in to put on the, the run of papers, right? And the guy hits the thing. And obviously it's then too loud for you to hear Jim Murphy. But he must know that, but he's also he's just talking. So he just stands there and talks for like half an hour. And you can't hear a single word he says. <laughs> he became this really like strange symbolic figure almost of like denial within labor of the fact that it would have to deal with independence at some point. And that's kind of continued, hasn't it? Labour's yeah. never really gone, look, we fucked up there, or we need to have a different policy towards independence. In fact, the 2019 election, Corbyn's first step in the election was he tweeted a thing about the SNP having helped the Tories in a vote in 1979. That was <laughs> yeah. the start of the 2019 election. It's incredibly tribal. Is Scottish politics just, does it just have that tribalism? I don't know. I mean, it's hard to come to terms with the fact that people hate you, right? And it's even harder 
to come to terms with the fact that people hate you for legitimate reasons. Um, <laughs> and I have a sense of humour about that, right? Um, which I'm sure we all have to do at some stage. It's a difficult thing to do. And this is why I think they've just been a victim of perennial humorlessness and just uh, inability to face up to themselves and um, get over themselves, quite frankly, in terms of that defeat. Do you remember that moment where they kind of decided they were going to love bomb uh, Scotland and they sent up all the politicians down from London? And then that guy followed them round and was playing the death march from Star Wars or whatever. I, and all the laborist little intellectuals were all going, oh, this means that this guy thinks that Scotland's been colonized by the English because he's playing the death march from Star Wars. Like, and it's just this type of, you know, incredulous humorlessness, you know, um, and just this inability to see, look, people just fucking hate you because they are sick of the fact that they cannot exert any political power over Westminster through you. Like, mm. And it just feels feeble to vote for the Labour Party. You've been expecting the vote for years and years and years and years, going back decades, and you're just not worthy of it anymore. And okay, the SNP hasn't proved to be much different from the Labour Party, but if you can't understand why people felt like that in 2014, there's something, I think, going wrong in your analysis. And also, if you look at the yes vote, who was it that voted yes? It was people in social housing, it was people in, you know, main, the higher percentage of vote in the, the west of Scotland. This was Labour's traditional basis that they had lost. And all Labour could conceptualise is that they've just been lost to the virus of nationalism. They couldn't conceptualise that actually this referendum, class issues are kind of infused through the referendum and through, and through the vote. Uh, they're, just, uh, done, they're just doing it in a different way from in the days of, of Labour's heyday when the notion was if you just voted Labour, you, you know, that's voting for your working class interests. People saw that they weren't getting, the, the Labour, voting for Labour wasn't, um, helping them in, in in any way and that's kind of agency took a, a new route and I think Labour still haven't grasped that idea they still think someday the politics will just come back to the bread and butter issues and all that nationalism stuff will just be uh, left to one side when the, 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 national, the nationalism stuff, the referendums even the Brexit referendum as well but the, the, the Scottish referendum these things are infused with class politics they just might not use that language yeah. As a, as a final thing before we open it out to the floor, I'd say having worked in England for a really long time, the one thing I think everyone always underestimates is just how little England cares about Scotland or Northern Ireland or anywhere else. And one of the main reactions you get when you mention any Scottish issue to people, even people on the left in England, is this slight delay where they remember Scotland exists. <laughs> I go, oh yeah, of course, you've got that nuclear base, so that's why, you, you know, like... And I, I, don't, I don't know that there's an easy way of uh, surmounting that. I mean, I guess how much do we all know about Wales in this room? Probably not yeah. enough, right? Um, so maybe we're all guilty of that at times. But I mean, I think it is the truth to say that it's not just that too much of our political culture in general revolves around Westminster and its circuits and so on. It's also true to say that too much of what we classify as the left involves around the circuits of liberal London. And one of the inspiring things that briefly did take place around 2014 was that we did get this sense of having an autonomous voice, an autonomous agency in Scotland and for Scotland, and that we seem to matter and be able to punish elites without having to wait for someone to make a decision in London that now was the time that we were to move forward and punish the elites. And I think there's something deeply inspiring about that, quite frankly. Um, I wish we could get back to a situation where people in Scotland were just taking it upon themselves to go out there and cause uh, the trouble. I'm hoping that something will come out of the current crisis that we're in, the persistent crisis of Britain. But deep down, my worry is that we tend to design politics around what London is thinking. And I'm, I'm happy to talk about this, but things like Enough is Enough are great and inspiring in their own way and so on. But there is part of me thinks that it just blows through the Scottish government like smoke. And I'm not saying that because I'm a nationalist. I'm saying that because I want the Scottish government to be held accountable. It's part of the reason that I want independence. But because you're designing a set of slogans and policies and ideas and, uh, and protests that are about relating to the anti-Tory mood of parts of England, it's ultimately not really going to hold our governing class here in, in Edinburgh and elsewhere to account. 
And I'm all for saying that the Tories are a major part of the problem, but I think it's crucially important that we are holding our, you know, our sturgeons and our various cabinet ministers and so on to just as much account, whether that means that we actually have independence or we use the powers of devolution in some ways matters less. What matters more is the fact that we actually are able to make them do the things that they need to do. Cool. So have we got any questions, folks? Are we going to get a mic to people or are people just going to have to speak loud, I think? I think you'll have to shout it out, mate. So yeah, just briefly then, so I've returned to Scotland six months ago after 35 years in England, disgusted by Boris Johnson's Tory party and what they had done to the place. I hadn't kept up with Scottish politics to a great extent, but when I'd seen Nicola Sturgeon speaking in coherent sentences and seeming to tell the <laughs> truth most of the time, what has surprised me the most is the amount of people I speak to who think, they tell me SNP are as corrupt as the Tories, Please tell me they're not. Uh, <laughs> as corrupt as the Tories, but I mean, probably not. But let's be fair. Uh, probably not as corrupt as the Tories. Are they, are they um, you know, doing what they need to do to tackle the massive, for example, just take this this, this cost of living crisis uh, as an example. Are, are they taking seriously the fact that, you know, child malnutrition in Scotland's doubled in a year? That if you want to deal with that, you're going to have to make radical policy decisions. You're going to have to you know, use your tax powers to redistribute money from the, the rich to the poor. Are they taking the hard decisions to, you know, deal with the fact that over 40% of, of Scots are in, in, in fuel poverty right now? No, they're not. And in many ways, they're reproducing the problems. Look at, for example, just to take one example, look at this um, Scotland where they've sold off the offshore wind licenses to Shell and BP and so forth. That's that's reproducing um, the same rule by corporate oligarchy that, that we have um, in the UK. I think the thing is, though, like, uh, like when you said at first that you would listen to Sturgeon and, you know, she sounds so much different to Boss and all that. I totally get that, right? And I do think there's a big thing um, right now um, where... In, Scottish, in Scotland, maybe also Scots elsewhere, where you look at Giorgia Meloni in, in Italy, right? You know, it's, it's basically this fascist coming to power. She absolutely hates refugees. Look at Liz Truss. She wants to hand over boatloads of money to the rich at the time of a cost of living crisis. And Sturgeon is almost like, you know, it, I think for a lot of people, it's like a comfort blanket, right? At least we've got a leader who says things that aren't, you know, like ridiculously offensive against refugees and isn't just like, you know, handing over cash to the rich. And I get that. But I think we need to, we, we need to change politics a bit from being kind of like supporters of poli what politicians say and more a kind of old-fashioned type of politics where you hold politicians to account based on you know, what, what you perceive to be, you know, what they need to do, what actions they need to take to, to change society. In the book, we call, we call like Sturgeon's politics progressive neoliberalism, where it's like talking a good game about feminism, climate action, poverty and all that, but not challenging the, the actual structures of power, which reproduce exploitation and alienation, at, you know, an ever greater ferocity. And that's really what I think has happened in Scottish society. Like, and, and people can take some comfort in the fact Sturgeon speaks a, a much better game than the politicians down south. But are they doing what they need to do to, to tackle the problems? No, I'd argue. There's one thing that always sticks in my mind. Do you remember the SQA exams fiasco from a few years ago, right? Where essentially there was an algorithm that was putting down your grades almost entirely when it came down to it on the basis of just social class. It was rightly a scandal, and there was rightly a lot of anger about it, and there was kids protesting about it, and it was brilliant for a while, and it felt like finally there was going to be some accountability facing the SNP. But nobody had to resign over that, as far as I remember properly. I think they'd ultimately dealt with it in the end. And what happened? A week later, the Tories did exactly the same, but worse. And this tends to be the situation, I think. I mean, is the Tories are always going to be worse and more corrupt. And that sort of forms the alibi for the continuation of the status quo in Scotland, ultimately, without fundamentally trying to change anything. I mean, ultimately, when it comes down to it, we're always going to be that one notch 
better than the Conservatives on most of these types of assessment of progress, of values and of morality. The question is whether that's enough for you right now. And I think given the massive extent of the challenges that we face as a society, just being that one notch better than the Conservatives just can't be enough anymore. Hello. So I, I turned 18 in 2001. Um, I would kind of push back a, slightly on this idea that SNP's rise was it was in line with uh, Labour's downfall. I, I kind of attribute it more to the competence of Alex Salmond and Nicola Sturgeon. I mean, do you remember Jack McConnell? The guy, the guy was a fucking moron, right? <laughs> <laughs> so my, my question is, when, when, if this de facto referendum doesn't work out and Nicola Sturgeon disappears off into the sunset, what, what fucking hope do we have? Who, who's going to fucking lead, lead the cause? It's a completely legitimate question in some respects, right? I mean, look, I don't think, as Ben said, I think our relationship to political leaders has got out of whack. Uh, we use the term parasocial relationships. I don't know if you've heard it before, but essentially it's this idea that political leaders should be your pal. Right. So on the left, you have AOC, you have the Jezza, you have, you know, Bernie. On the right, you have the Donald, you have Boris. Uh, you don't like have the Liz, but you never know. Right. But this doesn't seem to me to be a broadly healthy relationship for us to have uh, with politicians. Ultimately, politicians are people that you thrust up there and you hold to account. Nicola Sturgeon is a capable politician. Uh, don't get me wrong about that. Um, she's certainly more capable than Jack McConnell. And it's a fact that part of the reason behind the decline of Scottish Labour is essentially they sent all their talent, if you want to call that, down to Westminster um, and kept people up here who essentially were a sort of shiftless bunch of former union officials, councillors and election agents um, and didn't really have the capacity to run Scotland properly. So yes, you can attribute it to the superior nous of Salmond and then subsequently Sturgeon. The thing about Nicola Sturgeon is though, she has made a bit of a rod for her own back because insofar as she completely centralized uh, the movement after 2014 and tended to promote people that weren't so talented, people who would essentially not rock the boat, people who were very much in fact like the Scottish Labour predecessors. The problem they've got into is that you don't really have a natural successor to Sturgeon. Um, and thus, it's unclear, as you say, what will happen if she were ever to step down. I am not going to tell you that I think that there's going to be some radical left revolutionary takeover of the SNP, or frankly, that that would even be a healthy thing. Um, all I'm going to tell you is, like, Nicola Sturgeon's own actions are embroiled in the problem that that implies. Um, they have created a party that is too centralised, where her and her husband essentially run the whole thing. And... That creates a situation of a vacuum underneath. People have been unafraid to express themselves politically within the SNP. There's not organised groupings really within the party of any seriousness. And yes, when Sturgeon goes, I think we probably are in for a difficult situation. But eventually she will go, I think, because her type of independence and her model of achieving independence just by running Scottish public services better than the Tories run them down in Westminster the road for that is running out and eventually i think people are going to realize that this isn't working and one of these days the same thing that happened to scottish labor will happen to the snp if we just keep going on the same road we're on uh, hope, hope is um is something in short supply in general in the world at the moment i think right i mean we're in a battle for species survival at this point in terms of the climate uh, disaster and it's understandable if people um start to to lose hope but one one of the key ideas in our book is it's called the, the kind of subheading is called the two souls of independence, and that's taken from a a guy called Hal Draper. He wrote a book like thirty forty years ago called the Two Souls of Socialism, where he differentiated between socialism from above and socialism from below. So socialism from above was like the old social democratic leaders, the old trade union leaders, and basically the role of us, the people, is to kind of passively support our leaders and hope that they make the right decisions. Hope that, uh, there's the word again, hope that they, they, make, they, they do the right things and we, you know, we change society. Socialism from below is about creating a movement where people themselves have power 
um, that we we take charge of the movement for ourselves, that we're critical of our leaders, and that's the the driving force of of transforming society. We make the case for that we need in Scotland a, a sort of independence from below. You know that doesn't properly exist in Scotland at the moment. It's so dominated by uh, the SNP leadership that we need a kind of movement from below which holds our leaders to account, which really wants to change society, which you know is going to build power in communities from from the grassroots up. To me, that's the hope. Well, the hope is us. The hope is ordinary people. It's the working class. That's the, the 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 one chance we've got to you know to address the massive problems we have in the world. But I can understand why you know people would feel hopeless because it is a it is a grim situation. Not just in Scotland, it's a grim situation everywhere. I think. Uh, anyone else? It'd be good if it was somebody who wasn't a guy. Quite right. To get a bit dominated by guys. Are you not a guy? Fantastic. Oh, no, no, to be fair, I did ear quotes like that. I, uh, No, you're. I mean, look, you're absolutely right. I did the ear. someone. Oh, no, wait a minute. I mean, uh, <laughs> George Galloway. <laughs> See, there you go. We've got George Galloway. Like. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm only confused because, like, when I say talent, right, I did ear quotes like this. Uh, as. Come on, James. Is is was Gordon Brown talented? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not gonna argue with you. Do you remember Gordon Brown's like last election campaign? Was his um, defense or part of the election campaign was that he was a son of the man's? And that was how he had tried to appeal to ordinary people, was to say, look, I was brought up in a mansion. <laughs> uh, I'm not like one of these, because like, that's, you know, compared to Westminster, just being brought up in a mansion by, by, a, by a minister is, you know, relatively not. Anyone else? Get one last one? Yeah, you're a guy, but fuck it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks, I'll sit down, I've got... So, like, I just finished the book this afternoon and <clears throat> I found it highly informative in terms of like this guy here I've just come back to Scotland a couple of years ago after <clears throat> 30 odd years away and it, so it really filled me in on everything that I missed in terms of the run up to the uh, the, the 2014 and what have you <clears throat> so that's the uh, bouquet the brick bat is I found it a wee bit light on the conclusions you know, there was no talk about what we might do with land reform. There was no talk about local or the <coughs> the oxymoron of local government, etc. But realising that to cover all those things, the book would maybe be three times the, the length. So <coughs> the big thing that came through for me that I thought was really, really interesting was the f f what you pointed out about people thinking that independence happens on that day and then we discuss everything afterwards mm. as to what it go is going to look like. So I really like the idea that we really got to start that discussion now before the the actual day and then put everything being put off till then. So how would you see that discussion or debate or whatever actually manifesting, actually taking place? Because at the moment, I mean, we've got a rally on Saturday in George Square, and there'll be flag waving and the usual uh, Braveheart stuff. But there's no real forum that I see where people are sitting down and actually uh, debating this and bringing in the people that we need, like the working class or the, the people from the, the schemes, etc., etc. Yeah, I mean, I, I fully accept the point. I mean, we did debate having a sort of a policy vision for the book, right? We kind of do do that a bit, but what we didn't want was a policy vision that was dependent on the idea that the people of Scotland would immediately vote for a socialist government or a party of the radical left or anything like that. Ultimately, what we were wanting to put across was, okay, even if you're pessimistic, 
about the prospects of the left and you acknowledge the fact that the left often can get its act together, etc., etc., which sometimes we just have to admit. Here are the things that we would actually want to achieve with independence, which was above all to try and make it as much as possible within the boundaries of democratic control. My worry about things like the Sustainable Growth Commission isn't just that it's terrible economics, etc., etc., right? And Ben can run through with you the many reasons why economically it doesn't work. My big worry is that it's going to make decisions in advance of independence that we will never be able to vote away. And there's a number of other aspects to that. There's obviously decisions getting carved up in advance over things like NATO and Trident and EU and all these other institutions. And essentially what you start to get to is a situation where before you even have independence, if we could even get there in the first place, so much of Scotland's sovereignty has already been parceled up and given away to these various different institutions with very little prospect of being able to take them back once the people actually get any type of vote, which bears on exactly what you said. But I guess that was our aim uh, with the policy aspects of the book. Yes, we did have a sort of light approach and i'm sure we could be criticized for that but our main aim was to ensure that the people actually have some prospect of a democratic say over their own resources over their own military over their own place in the world because there is actually the prospect that all that stuff might be tied up in advance and the people and what they believe is worthless anyway regardless of whether they vote for a right-wing government or a left-wing government just just on the point about what do we do I think there's a, a few things um, that, that needs to start happening. The first thing and most important for me is that we need more honesty in, in the independence movement about the challenges that it faces. You know, for years and years we've had the, the, the UK government would not dare stand in the way of, you know, Scotland's democratic rights, Scotland's democratic mandate. It's obviously a lot of rubbish. They, they, they would and they will and they will continue to do so. So we need honesty about this isn't going to happen quick. It's going to require something bigger than just electoral mandates to deliver in Ben's referendum. Uh, and I think that's the first thing. There's not enough honesty right now about, about how about the situation for the independence movement. Second thing is the independence movement needs to become more independent of the Scottish government and the SNP, in my view. Like I, I was last weekend in Catalonia for reporting on the fifth anniversary of the, the, the Catalan referendum there. Um, they have uh, institutions that are completely independent of, of the government, they're well-funded, they're willing to be extremely critical of the government, really, really critical, right? That's what Scotland should have as well. Why, do we, why are we just relying on Sturgeon? You know, why, why can't we do stuff and build stuff independently? Why can't we challenge our own leaders? So we need more like independence within the independent, uh, independence movement. And then the final thing I think is that we need to tie independence, if independence is going to be relevant, right, with everything that's happening right now, the cost of living crisis, we need to tie it to other issues that are going on, you know, we need to tie it to the inflation crisis. Independence needs to offer some answers to that. I think one criticism I'd have with Sturgeon right now, what is she saying about the energy crisis, which is much different from what Keir Starmer is saying, it's just, you know, give a bit more money here and there. We should be talking about the fact that Scotland's a country with an abundance of cheap energy, renewable energy. Um, we don't. If we were not part of the UK's neoliberal energy market, um, we could provide and, and had a publicly owned energy system in Scotland. We could provide cheap energy to everybody. We could decarbonise the country pretty quickly. It's the the it's the, the the buyers of this capitalist model that we're stuck with in the UK that's preventing us to, from doing that. Now Sturgeon's not going to make that case. We all know that, but surely other people can start making that case, you know, and putting forward a different vision which is tied to the problems of of, of the cost of living crisis. So that would be a few things I think that that need to start happening um, if if the independence movement is going to regain initiative. It's not going to be exactly the same as it was in 2014. That time's gone. Um, we can take inspiration from that, but we need to build a movement in a different way now, I think. Great, I've covered a lot of ground. I think that was great. Can we hear it for the guys? (laughs) 
Books for sale in the foyer. I'm going to remind you. Very good, it was too. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed yourselves and have a great weekend, everybody. All the best. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Want more like this? Subscribe to Contra Radio on our SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up to our regular newsletter at contra.substack.com and find great articles and more at contra.scot. We really rely on listeners like you to help us grow. In return, you get access to exclusive content and events by joining our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash contrascott.com.